It's just that when we speak about investigation of Dhammas, we talk about those three characteristics. And when we talk about contemplation, we can choose whether we use one of those or we did the um, elements or we did our own uh, love and hate and uh, that type of thing. So we can use different things, where, but the mechanics are the same. Okay. I'm finding that when I make a determination to stay focused on the breath and meditation or focused on the feelings that arise in the first jhana, then I don't get the same feeling of contentment I do when I simply follow the breath or sensations, even though my mind sometimes wanders momentarily. I think it is because when I'm more gentle with myself, I'm not wanting results so much. Do you have any suggestion as to how I should continue with the practice? I think it's exactly the same thing what we talked about already. Uh, that this is yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, exactly the same thing. It's uh, less pressure. And um, you can make a determination, but you've got to drop it when you start your meditation, you know. And um, yes, and follow the breath. Be with the sensation. And if the mind wanders sometimes, well, all right, so it wanders. Yeah. That's what the whole world does. <laughs> yes, so, um, uh, yeah, no, no pressure. Just, well, yes, there is. Uh, you need willpower, too, to sit down and do it. But you don't need the pressure, I must. You know, so it's, uh, yes. More gentle with you, quite right. <laughs> hmm? I understand quite well mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of feeling and some of the associated meditations, but I'm not clear about mindfulness of the content of thought. When should we do this? When thoughts become most prominent to the attention? which seems to be a lot of the time. Oh, yes. Or do we use it as a meditation session? Are we just watching the thoughts like the breath or feeling sensations, whatever they are, or are we dropping or substituting unwholesome thoughts with wholesome thoughts? Similarly, with mindfulness of moods, do we only do this when it's prominent in everyday life or as a meditation session? Well, actually, the content of thought is most important in daily living. That's the most important thing. Because as we think so much in daily living, we have so many opportunities to think negatively and vice versa, positively too. So obviously this is very important. Um, in meditation, it only arises when we are not concentrated uh, but have to label. And then we don't just label because it's unwholesome, we label because it's a thought. Uh, future, past, not necessary, nonsense, later, uh, planning, hoping, remembering, uh, wishing, desiring, whatever. And then substitute with attention on the meditation subject. So in meditation, it's only a matter of when the mind is not concentrated, that we get to know what's going on in the mind. 
and it isn't connected to unwholesomeness, it's just connected to whatever it is that we're doing, with thinking. But in daily living, that is the important thing. Now, with the, and that is, in daily living, if we have been, for instance, concentrated on the body, and the thoughts are far more prominent, we do go to the thought. To the, and then we have this mindfulness of moods, Yes, well, <laughs> if we can become, that's in daily living. If we can become aware of that, we don't have to deal with the thought or the emotion. If we can become aware of that uh, uh, before that, because it's preceding, preceding. So, um, uh, if we can do that, yes, it's all in da- daily living. Mm. Well, you can, if you like, you can do a meditation session like that, which would be more a contemplation session, or I can call it meditation and just watch the thoughts and give them a label. We can do that too, I mean, just to have a change of pace. <laughs> you know, I would be trying to substitute Yes, um, if you do it as a meditation and you find that there's an unwholesome thought arising, you quickly do substitute with something wholesome because you don't want to hang on to the unwholesomeness, right? But it is meant for daily living. Mm. Does the mind consist of anything other than mental formation that arise from perception, that arise from feeling? Presumably it does give. It does give. It does give. I think give is unnecessary there. It does what? Give that it continues. I don't know that that word give is needed there. Oh, it is then. It is a given. That would be all right. It's a given that it continues after the body dies and feelings need a body. This question arose when I was trying to imagine this body and this mind without a me in it, and I got very confused. I think maybe that's one question and the other is another. Is it two questions? Two questions. Why are you there? You're usually there. <laughs> Couldn't find you. <laughs> yeah, it is two questions. Okay, then we'll deal with this one first. Um, the mind has four khandas, four aggregates, four um, groups, and one of them is sense consciousness, and then feeling, perception, and mental formation. These are the four. Now, when the body dies, is that the question? The, the question is, what, how does the mind continue working when the body dies? Because it doesn't have any sense contact. Well, it actually does. Um, it has a sort of sense contact, which one can see in these uh, reports of people that have near-death experience, and there are any number of these reports, that they see a brilliant light. And obviously, um, their body is lying in bed, and the doctors are trying to bring it back to life. And uh, so it's the mind that sees the brilliant light. And they have another thing that is very common in these reports, 
is a, uh, that they see a, um, like a like a deva, like a, a very wonderful being that helps them, takes them by the hand or something like that. It's also very common. Uh, so there is that sort of thing. I, it isn't said that anything is heard. It's more seeing. Now you know, right now, if you close your eyes, I'm sure you can see your house that you're building. Right? No, that's the same thing. We don't have to have the physical eye to see anything. The mind can see. Okay? Um, we can also sometimes even hear with the mind, but that's never mentioned in these near-death experiences. But certainly feeling is, is um, mentioned, namely the wonderful feeling that arises out of that brilliant light or that wonderful person that's, uh, or being or rather, not person, being, that's trying to help them. A lovely feeling. All right, well, you don't have to be touched to have a feeling. If we know our meditation, we know that the feelings we get without being touched are far uh, um, more impactful and far better than what we can get through touch sensation. So we don't need a body for feeling. And in fact, all the jhanas are feeling. And so they're all without sense contact. Well, you've got it right except the sense contact, and the sense contact is missing from your uh, 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 list here. And I would think that you should look at it from the standpoint of a living person, uh, because that's what we're concerned with, you know. So when you look at it from the standpoint of a living person, you've got your, your own sense consciousness, sense contact, five senses, and the feeling and perception and mental formation. And uh, then you can look at every one of those and think, well, do I own them? Are they me? And when the mind says yes, then say, why? You know, that type of thing. But all these things are possible after death. And yes, the, the mind does carry on after death for the simple reason that it still thinks of itself as me. And the body had to be given up. The body became useless. It was no longer functional. So it died. But the mind doesn't become useless. It doesn't become non-functional. It carries with it the idea that this is me. And so it just keeps on. Keeps going. Mm. Do you think it is a useful practice to repeatedly imagine there is no me and to experience the different feeling that produces in daily situations the feeling is often relief and makes it easier to let go of some attachments, at least momentarily. Or is this kind of imaginary practice likely to produce only a lot of imaginary nonsense, since I really don't know what it's like to have no self? Well, that's quite right. You don't know. But if you imagine what it's like and you can let go easier, you're obviously doing a, a good imagination. I mean, if it becomes easier. If it should become confusing or difficult, don't. But if the feeling is of relief and makes it easier to let go of attachments, even momentarily, that's fine. You know. See, now, 
the example would be the loving kindness meditation. Some people, I mean, I have so many students, there are always some, they can't feel a thing. They feel nothing. I mean, loving kindness is a, is a foreign word for them and a foreign thing. So they say, oh, I can't do that, I can't feel anything. I say, keep doing it. The words make the mind go in that direction. You can think about it. You can think how it is to love somebody. And they do, and if they keep on doing it, they eventually get the feeling. They can do that. Hmm? That also happens, yes, yes. Uh, it hurts here, mm-hmm. and that happens. Um, and they have to get <laughs> go through with that and keep going, which sometimes may not be so pleasant. Actually, when they start to feel it, what also happens sometimes, but that's not, um, then it doesn't take so long. When it goes quickly, they start crying. It also happens. And then they don't know why they're crying, because all things are very pleasant. Why am I crying? You know, so but uh, yes, it hurts here. When you don't do loving kindness meditation, mm. like just, uh, just, in meditation itself. just meditation mm-hmm. itself. Well, an aching feeling right here is usually connected with not loving oneself enough. So having set up barriers. And these barriers do do hurt. And the best thing to do with them, with any of these, is to do the part by part and go from the top of the head fairly quickly to that aching part and uh, try to surround it and make it smaller and maybe get rid of it through the skin. It's It's a barrier one has set up. It's an emotional barrier. I mean, obviously, there's nothing wrong there. It's just an emotional barrier. So it, the part by part can be very helpful there. One can do it several times. And one doesn't have to go through everything. Just start here and fairly quickly come to this spot because this is what one wants to do, you know. So that can be helpful. Anything else? Here are five questions on one piece of paper. So, we'll do them one after another. Is willpower a mental formation? And is willpower the same as free will? Yes, it's a mental formation. And um, yes, we can say that it is free will because it is the um, mechanism with which we actualize our intentions. You see, we may have very good intentions, but nothing ever happens without willpower to make them re- make them happen. So, um, and we do have free will to a certain extent. It's not complete, but certainly it's there. 
Are both mind and body made up of the four elements? No. The body is made up of the four elements, and the mind is made up of two, space and consciousness. But I didn't use those um, to give you that particular um, contemplation because, well, they're part and parcel of the formless jhanas. I'll mention them tomorrow. And um, I don't see that they are um, useful to use as contemplation if one hasn't been able to get near the jhanas yet. So mind is space and consciousness. Um, do the minds of animals other than humans consist of the same aggregates as the human mind? Yes, but in different proportions. So there may be far few um, far fewer mental formations and far more sense contact but they do have all that but they have different proportions does mind disappear when there is no self at enlightenment no it doesn't the self disappears if the mind were to disappear imagine the Buddha could never have taught us could he if he had no mind how he's going to teach us it would be dreadful, wouldn't it? So we wouldn't know a thing. So obviously, um, a mind is there, but the idea that there is a self there, that disappears. So there's mind and body at enlightenment. Um, in calm meditation, are we dropping perceptions, mental formations, and awareness of external sense contact and so only focusing on and experiencing inner feeling. Yes, that's right. That's quite correct. We're dropping all the rest of the stuff, and we are only focusing and experiencing an inner feeling which is not caused by any outer condition. It's in there anyway. Anyone who's skilled at jhanas and has done it long enough can sit down anywhere. It doesn't matter where and have first jhana. Can have it while talking, while waiting in a dentist's office, which is very useful. Uh, waiting for a bus that doesn't appear. In the middle of Martin Place. I mean, it doesn't matter. Anybody who is skilled at jhana, the first one can do anywhere. And even the second one. For the others, one does need a little more peace and quiet. Yes, for the peacefulness, one does need a little more peacefulness around. But first and second, we can do anywhere at all. So, um, the, um, you just drop the rest. If the mind is strong enough to drop whatever it wants to drop, it drops all the rest of the stuff. I seem to have got into a twisted relationship to my breath. Oh dear. When I look at it, it changes and does all kinds of antics. When I put my mind elsewhere and it returns to normal. Should I persist with watching the breath and try to work through these games or should I abandon it for an entirely different method? Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you very much, Bronnie. Um, well, <laughs> yes, I would abandon it for the moment 
because there's too much pressure behind it. When the breath starts um, being, um, you know, sort of responding to the thought process of I want to get med- uh, concentrated, then it usually has this kind of uh, antics. I would abandon it. Uh, you were working with um, some purple color. Couldn't you do that again? You can't see it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Doesn't come at will. Yes. Okay. Well, um, do the uh, part by part, or the sweeping, the full sweep. And uh, at other times, do a loving kindness meditation. But particularly do part by part and full sweep and uh, see whether that uh, helps with the concentration yes um, possibly but most people do need years till they get there very few people do it immediately and in order to do it for years you need uh, uh, perseverance and patience and these are all um, characteristics which one can uh, acquire it's not likely that one is born with them very few people are born with patience and perseverance if you just watch small children you will see they're born with the opposite they're totally impatient and have no perseverance at all so we can acquire these uh, qualities. But most people can't immediately uh, concentrate or even after a short period. They need years to do it. Years of steady practice. So, um, and if, uh, you know, with the business with the breath, uh, quite a number of people do get um, into difficulties with that because the mind puts pressure on. I want to be concentrated. You know, and, and it doesn't work. It's not um, um, helpful. Then the breath starts uh, going fast or it goes um, uh, irregular, which you're not um, uh, used to. So do the, do the other um, methods. And if you want to go back to the breath, every time when you realize that it does change, relax. Relax in body and mind on purpose quite um, with intention like taking a deep breath letting it all out letting the shoulders sag um, actually letting the body um, also be not totally straight really relax in the body and the mind, and then try again. It's a matter of not uh, being relaxed enough about the whole thing. Um, bad karma is actually manifested if one comes, well, if one doesn't come to meditation course at all, or if one comes and runs away from it. And uh, that would be considered that your karma wasn't right enough. But that one can't concentrate, that's human nature. That's just the way it is.
Most people have to sit and sit and sit and sit. And finally the mind gives up, you know. And the mind says, I've had enough of this, I'm going to concentrate now. <laughs> During one of your talks at the Buddhist Society of Victoria in 1994, goodness, do you remember what I said? I thought I heard you say that the teaching on mindfulness can be found in the Sermon on the Mount. Later, when I listened to the tapes, I did not hear it. Is the teaching on mindfulness found in the Sermon on the Mount, or have I misheard? Well, tell you the truth, if it isn't on the tape, I'm sure it isn't to be found, because um, I would have made quite sure that I would have mentioned it if I could find it. Maybe it's there, I, I didn't find it. Um, read the Sermon on the Mount again and see if she can find it. The, uh, the thing that would be the closest connection to mindfulness in the Sermon on the Mount is to become aware of yourself. I mean, the word mindfulness obviously isn't used, but it certainly talks about becoming aware of what you're doing. So um, uh, that's a connection there. But I don't think I mentioned it because there are only just now when you're asking, I th- am I thinking of it? I was more concerned with the um, more obvious bits the more obvious bits in it. A question that is often asked is where can we find the teaching of forgiveness which is such a central teaching in Christianity, in Buddhism? I think forgiveness falls under the thought of non-ill will which is under right thought, second of the Noble Eightfold Path. Is that correct? Yes, certainly. Um, that's quite correct. No ill will uh, Particularly, forgiveness is the uh, non-reaction with, um, no reaction with anger towards something which we think is directed against us. So if we think something is directed against us and we have no anger, obviously we're forgiving that person right then and there. Um, But forgiveness also is strongly embedded in loving-kindness. It's the derivative of it. It belongs with it. And uh, the loving-kindness which the Buddha teaches has uh, this forgiveness embedded in it. The non-ill will certainly has too. The, um, The second of the Noble Eightfold Path is actually right intention right view, right intention and uh, or you can call it right thought if you like but we don't get that right intention and right thought unless we have purified and the purification takes place through the loving kindness which contains the forgiveness as a derivative gratitude is a derivative of loving kindness forgiveness is too and with forgiveness you have to also always remember that one has to forgive oneself some people find that quite difficult because they're blaming themselves for things done or undone in the past very important to have forgiveness for oneself Uh, could you clarify something for me we have five aggregates one of which is mental formations and another is sense consciousness. The sixth 
sense consciousness as mind and its object. How does the sixth... <laughs> now we get the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. How does the sixth sense consciousness differ from the aggregate of mental formation? It doesn't. It doesn't differ at all. The um, thinking is mental formation. Anything that happens in the mind other than the other three, which are the sense contact and then the feeling and perception, everything else is mental formation. So the sixth sense consciousness, which is um, mind, not its object. Yes, you can see its object, mind and its object. Not just pure mind, mind and its object. Thinking. Thinking, that's correct. Uh, is the same as mental formation, the same thing, just a different way of, of saying it. And the Buddha said the same things in many different ways, so that we have different approaches. Or one person is able to approach intellectually, another person is able to approach emotionally, another person is able to approach meditatively, another person contemplatively. So he said the same things over and over again in different ways. So that we can all approach, approach it. That's it. Done it all. Many teachings emphasize the importance of prayer and acknowledging God. Could you please expand on this in relation to Buddhist teachings? Well, importance of prayer and acknowledging God would not be many teachings, it would be Christianity. That would be the one and only. Out of the five major religions, that would be the ones that have that single um, one God that would be acknowledged in Islam. It's um, Allah, not God. And prayer, of course, is often used. But this prayer and God would be Christianity. Well, Teresa de Villa, who was a Catholic nun, um, uses prayer as she explains her pathway to the other nuns in the book which I mentioned, The Interior Castle. And uh, as she explains, prayer, as she explains actually her different steps. It's not so clear because, as I said, she's very visionary and uh, it's um, the clarity and the simplicity is not there. But what one can get out of it is the following, and I have discussed that with uh, Carmelite nuns in different countries. But the first thing that one learns with prayer, or should do, is verbal prayer. Say a prayer. Uh, and as one has then learned that verbal prayer and knows it very well, one can say the same thing without verbalization. So it becomes silent prayer. But in order to be silent prayer, it has to be internalized. One has to have already been able to internalize the words, the meaning for oneself. 
what it actually means. So there's a big step between verbal and silent prayer. And then, from the silent prayer, one can go to silence. One can actually let oneself sink into that understanding that one has gained through the verbal and the silent prayer. So then one comes to meditation. Uh, If prayer is considered to be asking for something, some unknown power, it um, is counterproductive. We are always wanting something, whatever it may be. So if we want to go on a spiritual path, we should stop wanting something from somebody else and try to stand our own two feet and uh, on our own mind and heart, which are our two feet. And all practitioners of all persuasions, no matter what their traditional dogma says, agree with that. I have a fair bit of um, contact with Catholic nuns for the simple reason that they are interested in ecumenical uh, dialogue and so that sort of thing happens and they do agree with that. So um, prayer should never mean please God give me. We are always concerned with gimme, gimme, all the time. At one stage we have to stop that and do something sensible. And acknowledging God, that depends what you think God is. It's three three, uh, letters, G-O-D, what's it mean? It's loaded with misunderstanding. One has to find out what it means for oneself. The Buddha summed up the first noble truth by saying, in short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. Could you please explain why the qualification (coughs) (coughs) of clinging is added? Is it because the mental formations, non-greed, non-hate, and non-delusion are not mental formations of clinging? No. They are mental formations of not clinging, not mental formations of clinging. Okay? As long as, um, as, long as we have uh, dukkha, we've got mental formation of clinging. Pancha upadana kanda, the five kandas of clinging, upadana. But when we have the others, the non, we have mental formation of non-clinging. So then we're fine. And everything's on order. <laughs> hmm. Is it correct to think of Nibbana without remainder as better than Nibbana with remainder? Uh, no. no. I wouldn't think of it that way. Nibbana with remainder means that you're doing it during the lifetime. Your lifetime. Like the Buddha did when he was 35. And without remainder, Parinibbana means when the body disappears. Because even a person who is an arahant and has had Nibbana and still has the body gets dukkha from the body. The Buddha said that himself. But the mind does not react to that. But there is dukkha from the body. So we shouldn't think of it as it's better. It's one is in the lifetime and one is at death. Then it has there's no remainder at all 
without remainder means that the body has disappeared and the mind of course has been in Nibbana all the time so it doesn't have its personal remainder. For the past few days I have experimented with opening in a very gentle and relaxed way my attention to sound, as sound, somewhat like a big funnel. I found that I had good concentration which quickly became very focused on the heart region and oh dear and oh yes and after the meditation I experienced some of the best mindfulness I've known could you please comment on these experiences it seems strange to go from an external object to concentration within but it seems to work is sound as sound a suitable meditation subject is it one of the 40 subjects for meditation that the Buddha taught well uh, not in that in those words but he certainly taught mindfulness and that's what this is sound as sound is utter mindfulness a real mindfulness because usually what we do with sound is we react to it by uh, giving it a label and then a reaction so if somebody coughs the label is coughing and the reaction is I must get that person some cough drops or I wish they wouldn't do that in here or whatever but if sound is just sound that is real strong mindfulness and as it becomes really strong mindfulness it is a very uh, suitable uh, subject to become concentrated with very suitable and if that's the one that will help absolutely use it it's just uh, exact mindfulness on one of the sense contacts and in meditation uh, sound would be the one to use because sight you would have to have, keep your eyes open it's very disturbing really if you if you use sight and uh, you don't have taste or smell are not strong enough and they're not there anyway and the only other one that people have used usefully in the past has been the unpleasant touch contact but not everybody wants to do that I mean pain in the knee or whatever it's not necessary so sound is the uh, takes pride of place for that so very useful and very good and if you then become concentrated from that and the concentration goes to the you said that you were very focused on the heart region did you feel warmth uh -huh. okay well then you go away from the sound and go to the warmth yeah yes very good no, no, no problems with that. Right. Yes. On that same subject of sound, do you think that's why it's possible for people to come close to Dharma to experience listening to music? No. Yes, it's not the same thing. No. no. Uh, it's yes and no. The uh, it's not the same thing because. They don't listen to music as sound. They listen to music as music. And uh, they become uh, quite uh, enmeshed in the uh, pleasure of the sound. So it's, in that way it's not total mindfulness. So there's a no. The yes comes in. They're getting very, very concentrated because they, it really uh, grabs their attention to music. And it's quite possible 
to experience first jhana that way if enough purification of mind is there and enough concentration. I have had the experience myself, which uh, I find very pleasant. We were in Hungary in a restaurant and it is common practice in Hungary in a restaurant that there are some violence playing and they are excellent violent players I mean they are just in a restaurant they are not on stage but they are excellent so immediately I had first jhana from the violence but of course it wasn't the way I learned first jhana I mean I've been doing it for years before that so um, it was just a reaction to the violence because it was a very strong concentration and sensation. So it's uh, quite possible that somebody will get to first jhana that way, but it isn't pure mindfulness at all. Mm-hmm. It's just pleasant, a pleasant sensation. Well, if if the first jhana arises that way, uh, then one should definitely put one's attention on the delightful sensation, heart or wherever, make it go through the whole body, and then try even a little harder to make it happen without the music, because you can't always get the right kind of music, you know. So there's a yes and a no in it. You know, the no is the mindfulness, but the yes is yes, it happens. Anything else? Yes. I, you mentioned um, getting into the jhanas at any time as part of mastery. Did you mean getting into any of them at any time? Mm. Or mm. not only by first and second? Mm. No. Mm. You sit down and say to yourself, okay, seventh. Yes. And that's it. And uh, whatever. You know. But that's only at a later stage in the beginning you have to do them or maybe I didn't say that but in the beginning one has to do them in order because otherwise one never knows what one is doing they've got to be done in order and they've got to be done so that one knows which one one is in because otherwise one never can become master of it because one doesn't know exactly what the other one is like so I, maybe I didn't say that but that's also important mm. Mm. Yes, one should go through it, but you don't have to keep it. No. No. I mean, five minutes is plenty if it's well established, and then work on the others, have more time for the others. Um, second one. Second one, one should stay longer. Inner joy is very, very important, and most people who have not done second jhana, most people in the world who have not done second jhana, um, don't know what inner joy is. So it's very important to establish that well. But first one's not so important, no. Last chance for questions. Very last chance. <laughs> yes. Mm. Um, you don't talk about it much or 
No, um, the um, the Buddha doesn't consider it a very important part of it, but it is certainly part of the meditative path, not for everybody. Now, some people can do jhanas up, down, and sideways and never see a bit of light. And some people see light and still don't get into the jhanas. But what it actually entails is a bright sunlight or a bright light like a um, very strong headlights or something like that, which is a sign that the concentration has happened. So light is um, a um, like a signal that uh, concentration is there. And if it arises, if there is a bright light um, of any brightness, preferably sun, but even if it's moon, it's okay, to enlarge it, make it bigger and bigger, and sit in it, be totally surrounded by it. And as that happens, if we can stay with it for a little while, we're usually in first jhana after that. In fact, I think always. But not everybody uh, has light, gets a light. Uh, some people go to first jhana just by sitting down or by watching the breath or doing loving-kindness. And if the light is there, it can be extremely helpful. But not to think that the light is now a substitute meditation subject. It really isn't. It's a signal. It's signaling that, aha, concentration, make it bigger, sit in it, be with it for 